If I could have everybody turn to John 17, that would be good. John 17. Bible's in the back if you don't have one. If you didn't bring yours with you, I will assume that you have memorized it all. So you could just go to John 17 in your mind. That's where we will be. We're ending our series that we started this summer called Because You Asked. I've got to get that right because everybody makes fun of me. I'm not axing anybody, right? Because You Asked. Um, what we did was we fielded questions from you sent to the pastoral team, and we answered those questions, hopefully most of them. Uh, maybe some of you haven't been here or have questions about faith and about our practices you know, in the church, um, and maybe one of these questions uh, is yours or maybe something you've thought of. You can go online, you can download them, podcast them. Uh, the first question, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 12, and the sin that leads to death? It's in 1 John. John talks about that. That's the first question. The second question was, how do you, how do, what does it mean to trust God? We looked at Proverbs 3. The third question was the sovereignty of God and the suffering of man. We looked at Job 1 and 2, a great book on suffering. Then we answered the question, what does the New Testament have to say about tithing? That was question number four. Question number five, we talked about eternal security and the preservation or the perseverance of the saints. Number six was, what happens when you die? You know, what, what is heaven really like? Number seven, we looked at election and predestination. It's a long one. A lot of you tracked with me. A couple of you fell asleep, but that's okay. Um, but other than that, I thought it was, it was an awesome time together. And this week, we're feeling many questions that were sent in and had to do with how do we live in a broken world? How do we live in a culture, in a place that is broken, that is sinful as Christians? Different questions were sent in about different cultural practices. Um, so what I thought I would do is just kind of talk about what it means to be sanctified missionary. Okay, you'll understand what that means as I get into the text. For some of you, if you've been here for a long time, um, this is going to be nothing new. It's going to be a refresher course for you. If you're here and you're, you're somewhat new, the past couple of years possibly, um, this is going to be new for you. But together we will study um, John 17 and the teaching of Jesus on how to live life sanctified and as a missionary. Turn to John 17 with me, please. John 17, if you know, it's called uh, 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 the, the high priestly prayer. Um, it, it, is, it is the prayer of Jesus. It is the longest and the most intimate recorded record or recorded prayer of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Uh, it's a very special portion of Scripture, I believe so. I realize that all Scripture is God-breathed, all Scripture is authoritative and profitable. I'm just saying that there's something special about entering into that prayer closet of Jesus as he opens his heart and prays, and we get to listen in to his Father. It's, it's, it's an intimacy in prayer. It's just unique and very special. John 17. Let me give you the context. Jesus had just finished the Passover dinner with his disciples, his friends, his followers, those he lived together, drank together, ministered together for three years. Immediately after this this. this dinner, there would have been a song that ended the, the Passover celebration. It was then when Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, falls on his knees and begins to pray. Uh, so stressed out that drops of blood flow from his brow as sweat. It was the same hour that Judas was, good friend Judas, and his better friend Peter would betray him. Would deny him. Judas would betray him. Peter would deny him. And that hangs in the backdrop of what's about to take place. Jesus 
being God Himself, knows. And in the backdrop of what is going to take place, Jesus prays. And, and He begins His prayer in John 17, verses 1 through 5, talking about glory. You can see that there. Okay, John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Verse 4, I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You've given Me to do. So Jesus prays, glorify Me. Jesus prays, I want to glorify You. There, there is a glory being poured out on one another. Now, when we say the glory or the glory of God, just so we're all on the same page, glory means weightiness, doxazo in the Greek. It is the, the, the unsurpassable worth. It is the, the intrinsic and infinite value worth of God that He puts on Himself, that He is in Himself above all things. He is, he is great. He is preeminent. He is beautiful. He is, he, is, he is perfect in His moral excellence. So the weightiness, the value of God, that's His glory. And Jesus says, all that I've done, taught, particularly we'll see as He's getting ready to go to the cross, He wants the Father to get glory from it. That's what he's, that is what he's praying for. And to some, the cross appeared to be an, an instrument of shame. There's actually a false teacher, I think he's from Canada, that said that if the cross is true, it, 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 is, it, it is cosmic, what does he say? It is cosmic child abuse. That's what he calls the cross of Christ. But to Christ, it was the moment of great glory. It, it is on the cross that you see God's glory, His infinite value is displayed as He upholds justice dies for sins, and pours out His love for us. When Jesus dies in our place, takes our sin, our shame, our guilt, and the wrath we rightly deserved while we were still helpless. God as seen as glorious. He then continues to pray, verses 6 through 19, and He uses the word sanctify or sanctification. Okay? You'll see that all throughout verses 6 through 19. The word sanctified, we're going to be talking about that, so I want to make sure we're on the same page. The word sanctified means to make holy. Where we get the word saints. To be set apart. To be sanctified has, has two meanings in a sense. Well, one meaning, two sides to one coin. Negatively, it means to be set apart from sin. Okay, to be set apart from sin. It, it, it's to be, to be uh, at a place where we're not sinning. Okay, it has nothing to do with sin, to be set apart for sin. It also, in the positive, has to do with being a setting apart or dedicated to God. So negatively, set apart from sin. Positively, set apart, dedicated for God. Okay, there's also two aspects of sanctification. Okay, think with me, all right? First part is that it is done in a one-time single event. That we've been set apart for God, set apart from sin, and set apart for God in one particular event. It is when you and I repented of our sins, trusted in Jesus, been born anew. The Bible says that we were translated or transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You can read that in Colossians chapter 1. God the Father delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom, that's Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And now He, Jesus, has now reconciled us in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you and I, believers in Christ, sanctified, done deal, and blameless and above reproach before God. 
So it's a setting apart of sin, from sin, a setting apart to God, and it's a one-time event that took place when Jesus Christ died, rose again, and salvation was applied to my heart. That's why he prays. Verse 6, I have manifested your people, manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. So he's sanctified. Verse 14, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate, same word, sanctified, hagazia, I sanctified, uh, uh, excuse me, I, I consecrate, sanctified myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Okay? I want you to get that picture. Sanctification, one-time event. Kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We're in this world, we've been taken out of this world, and we're part of the world of the kingdom of God. Out of this kingdom into that kingdom. Sanctified. Another part of sanctification, which we'll look at in greater detail today, is the process of sanctification. It is the process by which we experience the transformation of our character. We become more and more set apart from sin. We become more and more dedicated, more and more dedicated to God. We're confessing sin regularly. We're repenting of sin regularly. We are, we're, we're being more and more uh, dedicated to God. It is the process that makes us look like Jesus in, in really straight terms. Philippians 2. Work out your salvation. That's the event. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So practically speaking, a life that is is living itself out more and more, set apart from sin, set apart from God, is a life that is centered on the Gospel. On Jesus and the Gospel. Is that what you're setting your life on? The Gospel. If you and I were had aspirations to be a great athlete, maybe a great swimmer, and one day you hope, someday, possibly, you will swim in the Olympic event. That's something you want to do. You will then set yourself apart for that purpose. Someday I am going to be good enough, and I, I hope, and my goal is to swim in the Olympics. You know what happens to your life? Everything in your life at that point becomes subservient and submissive for that goal, for that which you set yourself apart from. You may not be training every minute of every day. You may go out with friends, go on vacation, visit family, but everything you do from that moment on yields to the thing in which you set yourself apart for. If there's something that comes up, but it doesn't comply with with your goal, what you set yourself out to do, you will dismiss it. If something hinders your goal, something hinders what you want to see accomplished, whether it's something you eat, live, at times you even go to bed, wherever you hang out, you will dismiss it if it's not, if it's not subservient and submissive to that which you were set apart for. Win the Olympics. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them, set them apart, centered on Christ, away from sin, dedicated to God. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
Jesus is saying, when, when Christ, when the gospel is your life, and when everything else is subservient submission to Christ, it will show itself by being on mission with Him. When Christ, the gospel, is your life, when everything else is submissive to that, to Him, to the gospel, it will show itself by being on mission with Him. Sanctified to be sent, it says. To be truly set apart by the gospel for Christ and His mission means that Christ and the mission that God has has sent us on is not one of many different things. It is the center of our lives. It's the It's the the supreme thing that everything else is submissive and subservient to. All of life is then seen, discerned, lived out by that goal. By that goal. Sanctified missionary. John 17, in this passage before us, six times in this chapter, Jesus is seen or speaks about being sent. Verse 3, Verse 8, two times in verse 18, verse 23 and 25. You think he's trying to say something? The word sent, apostolo. Latin means, a Latin word is missio. Greek is apostolo, Latin is missio. It's where we get our word missionary. It literally means sent out ones. Or like we like to say here, sentness. S-E-N-T-N-E-S-S. It's not a word. We made it up. No, it's not a word, but there's a sentness about the mission. Jesus saying, I am on mission. I am sent. Over and over in the Gospel, over and over in your Bible, the theme, of course, is Christ, but it's His mission, one of redemption, God's work of redemption and reconciliation, restoration and renewal. Is that the true king, Jesus, the real king, the true king, was sent from heaven to establish his true kingdom, to inaugurate his true kingdom. The kingdom of God coming in the person of Christ would be crucified for our sins, who would minister in such a way that we get a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like until the day he comes and consummates everything and renews and restores everything. Jesus' mission, we'll see over and over, is that He came to deal with what's broken in our world. Jesus came feeding people. Jesus came healing people who needed to be restored. He came forgiving people who needed to be redeemed and reconciled. He came loving and caring for people who needed to be renewed. And when you become a Christian, when you become and I become a Christian, we join the mission of God. Verse 18 As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Here's the problem. As we talk about engaging culture, we have to talk about this. Here's the problem. When I use the word missionary, if I say to you, think of someone who's a missionary, who's the first person that comes to mind? You don't have to yell out loud, but usually it's somebody else. Not you. Oh, me. I'm a missionary. That's the problem. Part of that problem belongs to the church. Because we've been talking about those missionaries. We send missionaries, which we do. They're called global partners here because we want to get away from that. We should be thinking of ourselves as well. We should be thinking of ourselves as well. Every Christian is a missionary who's called to be sent 
called and sent to take the unchanging gospel and look to incarnate it, look to contextualize it in the culture for the cause of Christ. That means we have to learn the culture, which means we have to learn people's stories. We have to learn questions that they have. We have to understand their worldview, even though it's not biblical. We have to learn their hopes, their fears, their stories, so that we can engage with them for the cause of the gospel. Living as witnesses and ambassadors for Christ, permeating every sphere of influence with the message of Jesus, looking for ways to tell them about Christ. The book of Acts is going to show us over and over again Paul confronting cultures with the gospel. He wasn't running. He was confronting. And it's imperative that you see, and I see, and we see as a church, that we have been sanctified, forgiven of our sins, cleansed from our sins, dedicated to God, because God wants to send us into the world. Jesus is saying in this passage, Father, just as you sent me as a missionary... Into the world, I'm sending my followers as missionaries into the world. It's not something, this is not the church deciding what our mission's going to be. Let's sit down, let's figure out, everybody put your two cents in and we'll figure out what the mission is. But here's the mission. We don't decide that, it's already been decided for us. It's already been decided for us. The missio Dei, the mission of God, this Trinitarian God sending His people on mission. God the Father sent... God the Son, God the Father, God the Son sent God the Spirit to convince and convict people of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and we join Him on this mission as laborers, just as Jesus went into a broken, fallen world and broke through cultural barriers, then it's our mission to be like Him and to tell others the good news of the Gospel. We work for healing and serving our neighbors caring for the poor, proclaiming in word and deed that King Jesus has come. And when you live on mission, right, and and you love the people, you open your mouths, you open your hearts, you're willing to love and care for people, willing to talk about Christ, all that He is, all that He has done, the gospel is demonstrated, the gospel is declared. Remembering He loves all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all peoples and all cultures. He invites everyone everywhere to embrace, to, to, to respond to the work that He has accomplished on the cross, to experience forgiveness of sins, to, to understand the love of God in their lives, to live a life of hope and purpose and value. He invites us, people, brothers and sisters, on mission for that cause. Now, how do we do it? Jesus prays. He prays that we would stay off Two teams. Because as we live on mission, we could, we could, we could fall on one, one or two sides, two teams that Jesus prays that we don't join, okay? The first one is, He prays that we are not emulating. I don't know if you could see that. I meant to make that bigger, but Jesus prays for us to stay off two teams. Emulating, resembling the culture. He doesn't want us to, to, to resemble the culture. He doesn't want us to emulate the culture. Verse 14. I have given them your word... And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus is saying, in one sense, we're not to be part of the world. We're called to be different. Right? Amen? Christians who bow down to King Jesus, joined Him on His mission, will use things like money differently. 
They will treat their wives, men, differently. If you're dating, they will date differently. They will live their lives and their talents and gifts differently than the world. We as Christians will approach sex, politics, power, prestige, even our careers differently because we belong to a different kingdom. Some people will hate us for it. Jesus says so. Jesus is saying, look, remember the kingdom. Remember your first allegiance is to the kingdom. But people who take this and run with it, or I should say, people who take this and don't listen to it, they don't, they don't want to be separated under King Jesus. They emulate and they resemble culture and they forget it. And this, this type of people, this types of churches, um, don't call people to repentance because they have nothing they can really offer them. Right? They don't want to offend anybody. They, they, they think that everything in culture, they want to emulate, they want to resemble culture. They don't recognize that they've been called out from the world. They convert people, but to cultural norms, to cultural rightness, and not to the gospel. People then are, are sanctified, are set apart, and, and, and rather than being set apart by the gospel, the culture dominates their life. And soon they're starting to redefine theology, orthodoxy, reinterpret the gospel. Their failure is that they bring to the culture a false gospel of accommodation, not confrontation. They seek to bless people but not call them to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. So people do perish, go to hell, but they have social integrity. I really cared about that cause. Jesus says in verse 17, you know, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That, that's our, we go into the world with this. We go into the world with this. Sanctified missionaries must know their Bibles. We love people enough to tell them what sin is and how good and wonderful and great God's grace is. And there's a great need in our church, and we're going to talk about this in a couple of minutes, to distinguish cultural practices that are good and cultural practices that are sinful. We kind of just throw out the baby with the bathwater and thinking, you know, either all culture is bad or all culture is, is good. And these, this team, Jesus says, look, not everything is good. The second team he prays against us is the, the team that wants to escape, escaping and removing yourselves from the culture. Okay? Anybody, I don't know if anyone knows who Rebecca uh, Piper is, but she was a cult, maybe some of you uh, older people like me. Um, might know. She was a uh, consultant for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Some of you have heard that. It was way back in, in the college days, when days when like Peter Hussey was in college. Um, he, she writes this, We must not become, as John Stott puts it, a rabbit hole Christian, she says, the kind who pops his head out of a hole, leaves his Christian roommate in the morning and scurries to class only to frantically search for a Christian to sit by. Thus he proceeds from class to class, and when dinner comes, he sits with his Christians in his dorm at a huge table and thinks, wow, what a witness. From there he goes on to his all-Christian Bible study. He might even catch a prayer meeting where the Christians pray for non-believers on his floor. Luck has it, he's been able to live on a floor with 17 other Christians. Then at night, he scurries back to his Christian roommate, safe. He made it through the day and only contacts, and the only contact he had with the world was those mad, brave dashes to and from Christian activities. She writes, what an insidious reversal of the biblical command to be salt and light to the world. Jesus says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. You see, this camp, this team, believes that the world, the culture is all bad. 
and we must disengage from people. Right? Usually, if, if, you'll notice those who, who preach against all culture in the church, they're wearing 1970s plaid suit. You know, they want to sing hymns from 1970s, or choruses from 1970s. Culture's bad. It's like, dude, you are a walking cultural bomb right there. You know what I mean? Those are the kind of people who say, you know, Ken Hughes, a great Bible teacher, said this. He goes, it is possible to go womb to tomb in a hermetically sealed container decorated with fish stickers. Listen, Moses, Elijah, Jonah, all asked to be taken out of the world and their request was not granted. Separatists is what we call them. Legalists in, in Jesus' day. Pharisees. Pharisees, by the way, the word Pharisee comes from the word separate. They were called to be separate for God's law and to God's law. But they, they, they failed to see, and we do too. I'm not, I'm not, you know, rather than point, let's, let's, let's identify. They failed to see that they were men called out to live separate from the world as a way to be on mission. And that's why you see them in the New Testament, uh, many of the uh, pictures in Scripture, just being insensitive jerks. You know what I mean? They just they don't care about people. They lost the sentness, the mission of God. And we live that way too. I call them capital F fundamentalists, take the fun out of fundamentalism. You know, we hang out with only Christians, Christian hairdressers, Christian car mechanics, Christian plumbers, Christian, you know, electricians. Everyone's a Christians around me. We make up silly rules. You know, don't watch TV unless it's about Christ. You know, don't, you know, don't play cards because you know what happens when you play cards. You know, you play Uno, next thing you knew, you're losing your house. It happens all the time. Someone's spinning the bottle, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, you don't want to do any of that. May start playing strip poker or something. And if you're married, guys, it's a, it's a really fun game. But no dancing, because why? You know what dancing leads to? Really? You've got to be a magician to have that happen. But, uh, you know, people, I've heard people say you can't be a pastor if you're wearing a beard. You know, a pastor's wife must play the piano. Okay? I mean, crazy things. Tattoos, piercings, other cultural, cultural things. And people want to make rules around them. Some of you may say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say that we should not get tattoos? Yes. Leviticus 19. But just keep reading. Because it also says that we should not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. That's going to be my sermon for next week, okay? <laughs> we don't understand culture, what's going on. In that day, in Leviticus 19, there was a practice, a pagan practice of... Tattooing for the worship of false idols. And if you have a tattoo and you're worshiping false idols, which I'm not even making that up, that could be very true, then it's sin. But let's not force in our rules on Old Testament law when we're under grace. And let's not forget cultural realities of what's going on around us. I don't have too much time to get into that. A lot of the Bible needs to be interpreted carefully as we understand it in the context and in the culture of the writing. Okay, I'm not, I'm not dismissing truth. I'm not dismissing clear biblical truth. I'm just saying you have to be careful. Again, I don't have time to get into that. But some people believe that removing yourself from the culture is because sin's out there. I think it was Mark Driscoll said, sin is like catching a cold. Someone sneezes, you sinned. That's not true. And some people think, oh yeah, there's, there's really sinful people out there. There's none in here, right? 
The sinners are out there. No, you're all a bunch of wicked sinners, all right? Including me. So, and they, they wanted to separate themselves. You can't have drums. You can't have guitars. You know, you, you, certain things that they don't understand are cultural. In this church, what we believe is principles and methods. Principles in the closed hand, methods in the open hand. Principles, something we don't change. Methods we're open to. You have personal preferences, that's great. They belong right here. Principles, love your wife, read the word. What will NIV, ESV, morning, night, I don't know. What's best for you? Love your wife. How do I do that? Ask her. Honor your husband. Ask him. Sing unto the Lord. How many songs? Make music unto the Lord. Do we have instruments or we don't we? Methods. Open-handed. Churches like this, legalism, everything has to be done their way. Churches like this, all methods, they got nothing to say to culture. They have nothing to say because they have no principles. We try to be more like this. Believe the atoning work of Jesus Principles of Scripture. We have personal preferences. Maybe some songs that you may not like. That's okay. As long as you don't put them in here and we want to fight over them. Okay? And then people make up things like no dancing and, and cards and stuff that, that you, know, you have to really think through. And what happens is people evangelize, but they leave God out. They have rules, but they have no grace. They have Christianity, but they don't have Jesus. And all these things are meant to just separate us from people. Okay? And, and, and Jesus comes in the midst of culture. And, and, and by the way, Jesus said, where does sin come from? The heart. The heart. Somebody doesn't sneeze and you catch sin. You have to deal with it because it comes from your heart. And this team kind of just goes and totally wants to just remove themselves from culture. Did Jesus go to parties? The answer is yes. In fact, he was invited, the Pharisees weren't. So if you're not invited to any parties... You should think about that. They called him a drunkard. They accused him of being a glutton, friend of tax collectors and sinners. What kind of Bible teacher hangs out with those people? What kind of guy hangs out with those sinners? What kind of God is that? I'll tell you. He's a God seeking and saving the lost. Did Jesus ever sin? No. Scripture tells us that he was tempted in every way. So is it possible to love people where they are without sinning? Yes. Right? Jesus went to parties. Jesus drank wine. Jesus was not the guy at the end of the party with an empty bottle with a, bar, you know, a, a lampshade on his head. That wasn't him. Okay? Jesus loved people, but he did not sin. And Jesus is praying. He says, you need wisdom, you need discernment. You need not to be a people or a church that barricade yourself totally separate from others or a church that become reflectors in emulating the culture. You need to avoid these two teams. That's why he says in verse 18, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world, living as a missionary, gauging people, yet watching we don't fall into temptation and sin and compromise our sanctification. Jesus walked right into culture. Jesus dressed like the culture. Jesus went to the parties of the culture. Jesus sang the songs of the culture. Okay? And, and I will tell you that if you, are, if you are living as a missionary in your culture and the world in which they live in, the practices which they do, if it's becoming more and more delightful to you, more and more like this is a good thing and, and that you know, uh, it, it's seducing you and it's attracting you to the world, you're, you're going backwards. 
as you grow in your maturity, as you grow in your sanctification process, you recognize that this world really does not have much to offer. It's all disintegrating, falling apart, and coming apart at the seams. Everything is fleeting, except Jesus. The world should look more and more empty as you grow. The mission is not to be of the world, not to be just in the world, but to be sent into the world with the mission. That's the tension. That's the tension. That's the tension of being a sanctified missionary. Living in that tension of of obeying Christ, living separate, yet loving people where they are at. Where they are at. That's the tension we live in. We don't do it perfectly. Some of you here are on one side. You really don't want to talk to anybody. You don't want to engage engage people. The sinners over there. You don't want, you don't, you know, you're not really sure how, so you just don't. Some of you have gone too far. You're engaging in cultural practices that you know is sinful and wrong. And there's that balance between the two. I wish I could tell you it's really easy to figure out every situation. It is not. Talk to your community group. Talk to your community group leader. Work that out together. What are the principles of scriptures? What should I do? What shouldn't I do? Turning your back is not the answer. Jumping in with both feet is also not the answer. And the foundation of it is that your heart's been first changed by the gospel. And you must repeat it and remind yourself of it often. Remember the gospel. We were a sinner filled with pride and selfish, deserving hell. We shouldn't feel superior to anyone. I'm desperately wicked. I am sinful. I am rebellious. I say things. I do things. My motives aren't pure. I've been separated because of that from a holy God who cannot embrace sin. I'll never reach Him. There's nothing I can do to satisfy His holiness. The other part of the gospel is God loved me so much that He sent His Son to pursue a sinner like me. And even though I wanted nothing to do with Him, He died for me anyway. He forgives me and makes me His child. And if you believe that gospel, we won't remove ourselves from the world because the gospel tells us that God did not separate Himself from us. He stayed. He didn't stay in heaven. He didn't say, you know what? You screwed up. You ran. The hell with you. But he entered into a particular place in a particular time in a particular culture. He didn't isolate himself. He died for me. He didn't let me perish. He was crucified on my behalf. God loved me and pursued me anyway. So how can I separate myself from others? How can I separate myself when God so loved me that he closed the gap? And now I belong to Him. And how can I live like the world when the Gospel tells me I have a new Master, a real King, a Redeemer, a Ruler who forgives me? He didn't join me in my sin, but separated Himself by sinning not and therefore able to accomplish my salvation by dying on the cross. A sanctified missionary. So we're not to be separate and we're not to jump in with both feet. And the call of God on mission is to discern between what should be... I think I have the slide up. So, with all that said, how do we discern? That's where a lot of you are at right now. So I would say the call of God's people on mission is to discern between what should be refused and rejected in culture, reclaim and redeem in culture, and what could be received in culture. We have to put our thinking caps on. Think it through. Okay, think it through. Quickly. Things to be rejected and refused in culture. 
Things like idol worship. Okay, idols just not bowing down to wooden objects. Idols are, are looking at anything other than God for your identity, for your personhood, for your value and worth. Loving more, loving others more than God. Living, serving others, things more than God. Relationships, jobs, money, good things become ultimate things, become idols. I don't have time to get into that, but if you're interested in that, I have a lot of material on it. So idolatry is an issue for all of us. Taking the Lord's name in vain. Rejection. Dishonoring our families. Rejection. Sex outside of a heterosexual marriage. Rejection. Stealing, lying. Right? We don't have drug dealers. I'm a Christian drug dealer. Come on in. You know, it doesn't work that way. Right? We don't have nightclub dances for Christ. You know, that stuff we reject. Ladies, if you're ministering at work and you're, you're sharing your faith and you're trying to engage someone on your job and talk to them about Jesus, look for a way to love them, and they're trashing their husbands, which is the norm for today, being a father, being a husband, you don't join in. Guys, the exploitation of women in our culture, we don't join in. We reject that. There are other things, though, that we can receive. Things that we can come alongside, common grace that all of us share together. Hospitality. You can have hospitality with, with friends. Respect for, you know, parents. Uh, uh, respect for parents. It lines up with biblical truth. Caring for the environment, right? We don't hug trees, but we care because we know the Creator. And if you don't know the Creator who created it, it's a gift to you. You should get to know Him. Things like music and technology and creativity. Even if not Christian, if it's done well and it's congruent with biblical values, we receive those things. God is not just creator, He is creative. Burdens for the poor, for orphans, helping people in need is a biblical value that we receive. We don't need just Christian organizations, although we have you know, very good ones. I'm not knocking the Capital City Rescue Mission. But we need people on mission in other organizations so that they can share the love and, and, and declare and demonstrate the gospel to them. There are cultural expressions we should redeem. So there's some we reject, there's some we receive, there's some we redeem. The world has taken certain cultural practices and twisted it. People love money and they use people to get more money. As Christians, we redeem that, we reclaim that. We love people and use money for the glory of God. Some people love sex and they will what? They will, they will live and, and, and use people. We reclaim it. Again, in heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman. The redemption of sex. We're not against power. We redeem it. We're not against, you know, uh, the twistedness of family values and child rearing. We redeem it. Paul, the apostle, was, we'll see in Acts, wasn't shy. He confronted sinful practices of the culture. He, he rebuked someone who was drunk. He rebuked the man who had another, uh, uh, his, a man who had his father's wife as sick as that is, and yet he received cultural practices. He circumcised Timothy for the cause of the gospel. He redeemed money and power and authority as an apostle to share the gospel. The goal is the same, but the methods are very different depending on the people you're ministering to. So in order to engage, we have to understand and think through the idols of the culture, the, the practices of the culture, and is it something we receive, is it something we reject, is it something we redeem? And you may say, well, how do we do that? Let me just give you a couple of questions, okay, as we move on. That's the last. That's, oh, let me go back one, two. Okay, here's a couple of questions. 
Think through this with me, okay? Think through this with me. If what am I doing in, this, in the culture, is it beneficial to me personally and to the gospel? Is it beneficial to me and to the gospel? Okay? Number one. Number two, will I lose control feeding my sinful desires if I partake in this? Whatever this may be for you. Will I lose control? Will I feed my sinful desires? Number three, will I be doing this in the presence of someone I know will fall into sin? This has to do with a a, a weaker brother, a weaker sister. Can I do this with a clear conscience? Can I do this knowing biblical principles that surround it? That's the tension we need to live. It's easy just to swim up the tide and do what everyone's doing. It's easy to turn your back, close the door, and not talk to anybody. It's much harder to think through those questions and look to bring God glory, look to connect people to Jesus, look to promote and declare and demonstrate the gospel. Where do we draw the line? Sin. That's pretty simple. Turn with me before we close together to Jeremiah, Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 29. I just want to show you something. And then we'll call the band up. Jeremiah 29. Old Testament. If you're in Isaiah or if you're in Psalms, go to the right, to the back. Jeremiah chapter 29. Verse 1 provides historical information, some background for us. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people from Nebuchadnezzar and had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay? Jeremiah, young prophets around the 6th century. Usually they speak for God, prophets, but this one's writing a letter. The Babylonians had come in just like God said He would send them and He destroyed uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, and all the Israelites were taken captive by the Babylonians and the Babylonians deport, that's what they did back then, they took everybody and deport them and brought them back to Babylon, actually dropping the sec, you know, people off along the way, but they bring them back to the city of Babylon. And Jeremiah is a prophet foretold this was going to happen because of their rebellion, because of their lack of faith and lack of trust in God. And now God calls Jeremiah to send them a letter. Okay, send them a letter. And he does. And now you've got to understand, track with me, the people are in Babylon under captivity. They're slaves. They've been conquered. People have been killed and, and places have been burned down. And, and the army came in and took everything, killed people and, and brought all these people back to Babylon. And they're in a place that they found themselves physically, emotionally, and spiritually there, but not wanting to be there. And hear what God says to them, to this broken and hurting people. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile, who sent them? Whom I have sent. Everything I just said was the hand of God. Into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. That's what I want you to do. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. See what God is saying? God is saying, work out your relationship in a new place with a new people who are completely different than you. They have different values, different belief system, different practices. Work it out. And let me tell you something. The Babylonians capture them and bring them back 
One of the reasons is so that they would assimilate in the culture. After generation and generation and generation, they would forget that they were the worshipers of Yahweh, the covenant people of God. That was their hope. That as they just get involved with the community and they get involved with the practices and cultures of that day, they would lose their distinctive identity as the covenant people. Okay? That, that's the, one of the reasons they brought them there. So you have the Babylonians saying, join us. In chapter 28, you don't have to look at it now, you can look at it later. Hananiah tells the people, God does not want us in here. It's going to be short. We'll be here two years tops. And then God's going to deliver us. They're false teachers. So don't settle in. Don't get comfortable. It's only going to be two years. And God pronounces judgment on those false prophets. So you have the Babylonians settle in, assimilate, be like us. A couple of years, we won't even know who you are. And then you have the other people saying, don't get involved. We're only going to be a short time. Uh, don't, don't really get comfortable. But what, what does God say? It's going to be a while. Get houses, settle down. Get gardens. You're going to be there a while. Live as normal as possible. Marry and have sons and daughters. Instead of hoping for their demise, they were encouraged to seek the shalom, the peace and prosperity of the city. They even told to pray for Babylon. In other words, move into the city, serve the city, but keep your spiritual identity, actually serve the city, love the city, out of your distinctive covenantal relationship and identity. Jeremiah will preach against sin even on that city. So he's not saying don't you know, ignore sin. But if you notice in this text, what he's saying is your shalom, your peace, your prosperity, your welfare will come out of what? The fact that you are serving for the welfare of that city. Then you too will find joy and prosperity in serving, not escaping, not emulating, but serving those people. Who else, family, who else lived like that? Who else lived in a pagan culture but lived for the glory of God? I think of Daniel. He was part of that exiling out of, out of uh, Judah. He found himself, you know the story. He was, he, was, he was taken captive from Babylon. And yet Daniel and other three other teenagers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for their, for their uh, not Hebrew names, because that's too hard to remember. Daniel and the three other teenagers went into exile. And yet Daniel served the king. He was pressed into civil service of the pagan empire, had pagan education, but was able to exercise authority. He maintained faithfulness to God. He loved people. He obeyed God. And he faithfully uh, obeyed the Lord in a pagan culture. Joseph, we did that in Genesis. Here's a man living in Egypt. But yet Egypt, what? God blessed tremendously. He went through a lot, been through a lot. But if it wasn't for Joseph, even all of Egypt would have been destroyed. And last one is Nehemiah. Nehemiah gets a call to go back and build a wall. From, and the pagan king, what does the pagan king do? Not only does he let him go back, he says, how much money do you need? I'll fund it. I'll send horsemen, I'll send chariots, I'll send money, I'll send timber. What you need, you got. You're my faithful servant. And yet Nehemiah was a servant of the Most High God. To be sanctified missionary means to live the place that God has ordained and set for you to live in. For His glory, in obedience to His will. In such a way that we're engaging people around us, recognizing that our God is a missionary God who was sent His Son to die for us. 
We don't run. We don't remove. We don't resemble. We engage for the glory of God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I don't know what situation you're in, but the band's going to come up and this is what we're going to do. Listen to me. One more minute. Band, come on up. This is what we're going to do. We're going to call the whole church, which if you're new here, this is what we do. We call the whole church to repentance. I'm going to say that most of you are on one side or the other. That you either have not engaged people because either you don't, have the, you don't think it's necessary, maybe you think you're better than them, maybe there's a culture of people that you point your nose at and you haven't loved them and shown them the love of Jesus. You've been prideful, selfish, and foolish. And maybe some of you right now living in a relationship, you're living in a community, and you know what? You're doing just what they do. You're not living on biblical principles. You know what they are. But you're living and emulating the cultural norms of the day and not by biblical principles. So we're going to call the whole church. As the band plays, we're going to confess our sins. An opportunity for the Spirit of God to work in your heart to repent of your sins. I mean, to turn from them. And then you're going to come up together and receive the bread and the cup because we're going to celebrate God's forgiveness. He says, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 9. 1 John 1, 9. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to this table. If you're here visiting you're not sure, just sing, talk to Jesus, pray to Jesus. And uh, we'd love to talk to you after this service. The table's for Christians, for brothers and sisters. We're not here to point fingers. We're not going to say anything to you. But the table is for believers. And we want to invite anyone, not just King's family, but anyone who's a believer in Jesus, who loves Jesus, who trusted in Jesus' salvation, work on the cross to come to communion together. And if you never did, now's the day. Bow your head and invite Jesus into your life. Make Him the center and make everything else subservient to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the Gospel. Father, thank You for sending Your Son, the atoning sacrifice. Thank You that we could never, ever, ever pay for our own sins. And Lord, we thank You that Jesus did. We thank You that not only did He come, die, rise again, but that You sent Your Spirit who's on mission, seeking and saving Lord, and calling those to repentance and faith in Jesus. Father, we pray. We don't want to be prideful, foolish, and and arrogant people. And Lord, we want to be humble and love people. And Lord, we don't want to be people who just go along and not stand for truth and stand for you. Help us to be uh, in that tension and be in that balance so that you would get glory and that many people will come to know and love Jesus. Put somebody on our heart, somebody we can come alongside, somebody that we can love and hear their stories, their hopes, their dreams, and Lord, get to know them so that we can connect them, see what their idols are, and then point them to Jesus, who forgives sins for all those who call upon Him. Father, we love You. We pray that You would guide us in our, in our response. In Jesus' good name, Amen.